Um, turning your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4, uh, we're going to read actually three verses, the first three verses of chapter 4. Let me say this before we read uh, these verses. Um, I, I don't think y'all are, are close your Bible kind of people. I don't think you're, okay, he's done reading, so I'm going to close my Bible now. This is, if you are, don't, because you're gonna, we're going to flip. You're going to need, we're going to go several other places. Um, so just let me urge you uh, to keep your Bible open. You're going to need your copy of God's Word um, as uh, we work through these verses. Uh, Philippians 4, beginning in chapter 1. As you know, it's our practice to stand when we read God's Word, so let me ask if you're able uh, to do that now. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Uh, We pray, O Holy Spirit, as the author of these words, as the one who has preserved these words for us, uh, that you would now operate by them, through them, on us, and conform us more and more into the image of Christ, for it's in His name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. You know, sometimes um, as your kids get older, you um, you kind of sometimes will look back. I mean, you'll kind of examine back over their lives and kind of ask yourself, you know, what did I do well? What did I not do well? What do I wish I'd done more of? What do I wish I'd done less of? Um, you know, if only I'd read scripture with them more. If only if I'd read more of Scripture, different parts of Scripture. If only I'd taught them the catechism. If only I'd... You kind of evaluate. You know, what, how, how, what have I equipped them with? What have I taught them that, that they need? And perhaps what have I taught them that maybe I shouldn't have taught them? That I wish now I could go back and go, I wish they never seen that in me. I and mean, we, we teach them not just the good, but we also teach them the bad as well. I'm struck by this. In... in um, in thinking through that question, I've, I've realized something. I never taught my kids to say mine. I never taught any of my kids to say no. They had those. They could say mine. What they couldn't say was yours. They could say, no, I had it first what they couldn't say was, it's okay, I'll let you play with it. I never, ever taught any of our three kids to say, mine. They had that down. I would love to know if any of you have taught your children how to say, no, you can't have it. I'd love to know if any of you actually had to teach your children to say, that's mine, give it back. In some ways, when you put C 
sinful people together in a place, you get conflict. When you put sinners in the room together, you get disagreement. You you put two kids in a room together and, and you don't teach them to say, no, you can't have that. I had it first. Why? Because my sin teaches me to say that. My own sinful desires teach me to say that. I come out saying no to you and saying mine. I I don't come out saying, yes, I would love for you to play with us too. Come join me. Let's play together. Let's, here's the word, share. Kids aren't born knowing the word share. Kids aren't taught to be selfish. They're not taught to hate. We teach them to love and to be selfless. There's a conflict in the church in Philippi. And Paul writes these verses to address that issue. Paul writes these verses to address this this conflict in the church. Now, he's addressed a number of topics already. We've seen this over and over again through the first three chapters. We tend to think of Philippians as the book of joy. The the number of times he says rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. The number of times he calls us to a life of joy in Christ. But the church wasn't always perfectly joyful. He's also written to correct false teaching. He's also written to say, well, these people that are coming along and saying, Jesus, yes, but Jesus plus circumcision, Jesus plus food laws, Jesus plus obedience, Jesus plus, and it doesn't matter what they put after the plus. If you say Jesus plus, it doesn't matter what's after the plus, you've ruined the gospel. He writes to correct that truth. He warns against false teachers. He calls us to joy. He's also recognized that there's some sort of conflict there's some sort of personal competition going on in the church at Philippi. He, he's, you remember the beginning of chapter 2. He, he doesn't have to teach them, look for your own interests. He does have to teach them, look to the interests of others. He, he doesn't have to teach them, be selfish. He, te- he's, he does have to teach them to have this mind of Christ to seek the good and honor and glory of Others to consider others better than yourselves, to look out for the interests of others as well as your own. We know that when you put sinners in a room together, when you put fallen, broken, sinful people, redeemed, yes, but when you put fallen, broken, sinful, sinful people in a, in a group together, there's going to be conflict. But it, it strikes me as odd how many times Things like this happen in a church fellowship, and that church thinks, how did this happen here? We teach the doctrine of sin. We teach total depravity. We teach original sin. We firmly, wholeheartedly believe that we're fallen, broken, sinful people in need of the cleansing blood of Christ. And then when there's conflict, we're shocked. Like, like, how could that possibly happen in this place? Here's the letter of joy, and Paul's addressing some sort of conflict going on between these two women. Sometimes the, 
the biggest threat, the biggest danger to the church isn't outside the church. Sometimes the biggest danger to the church is actually inside the church. Sometimes the more difficult conflict is not outside the church. It's not, not with unbelievers. It's not with those outside the walls who want to lob shots at the gospel, who want to lob, lob shots at the church, who wants to, want to lob shots at the Bible. Sometimes the greatest conflict comes from inside the church. And truth is, it's probably those battles that make it the most difficult for a church to accomplish its mission in the world. That's the setting of what Paul writes in these verses. That's what's going on in the life of the church at Philippi as Paul writes these verses. A a word of warning before we dive into the text itself. Every, almost every, I can't say every, most, many, many times I leave church, not as the preacher, but in my life, sitting right where you're sitting. There have been, I don't know how many times I've walked out of church and thought to myself, and maybe even said out loud, I sure hope the guy on the other side of the church was listening. Man, if only so-and-so had been here to hear this. They really need... The number of times you get in the car and think, man, I wish so-and-so had heard this. I wish so-and-so had been here to to hear this sermon. Or, Or I sure hope my wife was listening. I sure hope my husband was paying attention because I'm going to remind him of it when we get to the house. I realize that's a danger in every sermon to some extent. Probably... None as great as it is here. This of all places is a place that we would go, boy, I sure wish so-and-so had been here. I sure wish so-and-so had heard this. I sure hope so-and-so was paying attention. If that's the thought in our minds, that probably proves we need it more than anybody. If that's the thing, if that's the takeaway then we've probably proven the point. This is exactly what we need to hear. Paul writes to correct this issue, this conflict between these two ladies. Paul, you know, is no stranger to conflict. Turn to Acts 15. I need just to show you. I could tell you. I could just recount it for you. I'd rather show you. Paul is no stranger to conflict, to personal conflict. At the end of Acts 15, just a little background. Acts 13 and 14, Paul's first missionary journey. Paul and Barnabas take a mission trip together. And at the end of that trip, you get this question about the Judaizers... And the first part of 15 is the Jerusalem Council. Do Gentiles have to be circumcised in order to be Christian? And the answer was no. That's the Judaizer question in Philippians. And it's at that point, as they're about to take off again on another mission trip together. Now keep in mind, Paul and Barnabas have have served together. They've proclaimed Christ together. They have... 
uh, perhaps baptized together. They've, um, they've ministered together. They've preached together. They, they, were, they had hands laid on them. They were sent out, commissioned together to take that mission trip. And then we get this at the end of Acts 15. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Hey, let's return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Barnabas wanted to take with him John called Mark. Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia. John Mark had served as ministry assistant to Paul and Barnabas on that first first missionary journey. Well, for part of that first missionary journey. In Pamphylia, he decided, I'm going home. He left. We get no explanation. We don't know why he left. We just know that he left. And here, as Paul and Barnabas are preparing to go back out again, Barnabas says, let's take John Mark. Paul says, I don't think that's a good idea. Does he find John Mark unreliable? Untrustworthy? Is he afraid that he'll leave again? That he'll bail out again? That he, that he won't see the, the, the work through? The indication here from Luke is, well, he wasn't a part of the trip to begin with. Why should he go and visit these churches to strengthen them? He wasn't there to plant them. So why should he go back to, to see them? And you notice what happens. You notice the effect of that disagreement. Barnabas took John Mark and they went one way. Paul took Silas and they went a different way. Paul is no stranger to conflict within the, the context of church ministry. And you have to think that as he's, as he's writing to these ladies in chapter 4 of Philippians... This is in the back of his mind. Because if you recall, the core group that would become the church plant in Philippi is in Acts 16. Had it not been for this conflict, his audience would have known Barnabas. As it is, they don't. They know Silas instead. Because Paul and Barnabas had split over this philosophy of ministry, over this idea of how to carry out ministry, whether to take John Mark with them or not. So Paul's no stranger to conflict. These women, Euodia and Syntyche, okay, if, if you haven't heard it, you might, and if you have heard it, one of you is going to come say something to me, so I have to, some of you are smiling, you already know where I'm going, I have to do the joke, right? The, the joke about their names, you can, you can tra- change their names from Yodia to Odious and from Syntyche to Suntachi. So that she's, she's a little, you know, okay. Um, okay there's the joke. There's the, 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 the play that, there's your church humor for the day. Um, we don't know what causes this argument. We don't know what the struggle is. We, we aren't told. Sometimes you wish God's Word would... Okay, a lot of times we wish God's Word had more in it than it does. We have all kinds of questions that we 
don't know, we don't understand, we sure would love to have an answer to that. Why wouldn't he even give us? Then we, then we ask that question. Why wouldn't he give us the answer to that question? That question seems so obvious. Why would We don't know what's causing the struggle between these two ladies. We know that it's not doctrinal or moral. How do we know that? Well, if, if one of them is teaching false doctrine, Paul corrects it. He's already done it once. In fact, he has, he has names for those people. It's dogs and mutilators of the flesh. Remember, that was just a chapter or two ago. He's already done this. If they're teaching false doctrine, he's going to say, Syntyche, um, you can't teach Jesus plus. You, you can't do it. She, he will, he'll call that out. He'll address that if it's an issue of false doctrine. If it's an issue of, of morality, if, if Syntyche has discovered that Euodia is, is stealing money from the, the offering plate, if there's a moral issue, Paul's going to address that. There's, there's no mention of anything like that. We don't know the, the detail. We can rule out issues of, of morality and false doctrine, but we don't know the, the real reason behind the argument. What we do know is that obviously this conflict is public enough to warrant a public rebuke. This letter um, is carried by Epaphroditus to the church. And there, there were no, there's no printing press. There's no email. There's no blog. There's no social media. You can't announce to bazillions of people at one time, many of which don't care. It's, there's, there's a public reading of this letter. The church gathers and, and Epaphroditus reads the letter, or someone, perhaps not Epaphroditus, perhaps someone else, an elder in the church, we, we aren't told, reads the letter to the congregation. It's obviously public enough that it warrants public rebuke. Imagine you're Yodia and you know, you're sitting on this side of the church. And you're Syntyche, who of course is not going to be sitting near her. They're going to be sitting over on, she's going to be sitting on this side of the church. When your names are mentioned out loud for all the church to hear. Their eyes get big. They kind of slide down in their chair just a little bit. But the church knew about it already. The church would have known that, that the ripple effects of this conflict are actually reaching out into the church itself. Otherwise, Paul couldn't have rightly, biblically gone public with it. He can't make something public that is private, that's supposed to be private. If it has to be addressed privately, he would have to leave it to be addressed privately. It's got to be publicly known enough. For that matter, he knows about it. In prison, in Rome, hundreds of miles away. So it's public enough to warrant public rebuke. You know, probably the best way to start an argument in a church. And I promise I actually long for this day. I really do. You might think I don't, but I actually long for this argument. But you want to cause a real good 
row in a congregation. Build a building. Because then you have to pick out, you know, carpet color. Build a building because then you have to decide the shape the, the sanctuary would take. Build a building because then you have to decide you know, how many classrooms to have and, and, and you know, what's, what's, how are you going to decorate the place? What's it going to look like? Or, or, or sing Red Mountain songs. Sing songs. I just, we just introduced a new song to you. That's the wrong tune. You can't use that tune. You can't use these updated tunes. Well, I sure wish the Bible had said, here's the shape your sanctuary should take. Here's the right color carpet to use. And I will even go on record and say, it's not orange. As much as I love orange, that is not the color carpet to use in a church. Here's the tune you should sing songs to. You should actually not use this instrument. You should use that instrument. We long for those kinds of details. We aren't given those, those kinds of, of specifics in God's Word. He allows us the freedom to exercise wisdom and gifts as He's given them in our context to, to use those things as we can and see fit. And yet those are the things that cause the biggest struggle. Those are the things, those are the issues that cause the, the biggest conflict in the church. This isn't an argument about truth. It's an argument about preference. Yodia and Syntyche are not having a, an argument. They're not having a debate. They're not having a falling out, falling out. They're not at odds with each other over the deity of Jesus. Fight for that one. Right? They're not even having an argument about Believer's baptism or infant baptism. <clears throat> they're not even having an argument about Presbyterian government or congregational government. They're, they're not arguing about that at all. They're getting into things that are even less than that. It's amazing how quickly non-essentials can become essentials when we allow our, pre our preferences to become the standard by which everything else in the church is measured. Yodia and Syntyche are at odds with each other. We don't know the, the true content, but we know it's not a matter of truth. It's not a matter of, of something that strikes at the vitals of our holy religion, to use technical, official PCA language. And did you notice? Paul never says by the way, Yodi, you're right. Syntyche, get over it. He never says, you know, Syntyche, I know you're right. Yodia, you're just going to have to yield on this. He urges both of them. I entreat, even the way it's written. He treats them equally. He, he addresses them equally. I entreat Yoda, Yodia. And then he rewrites, I entreat Syntyche. He writes the exact same thing, the exact same way. He treats them equally. And he says, I urge them, I plead with them to agree in the Lord. That's his, that's his command. That's his only instruction to them is to agree in the Lord. That doesn't simply mean 
forget about it, get over it. It doesn't even mean it's no big deal. He urges them, though, to come to unity, to some sort of oneness, some sort of of unity in the Lord. What does it mean to agree in the Lord? At the very least, it means that the gospel comes first. It means, at the very least, that Christ is preeminent in this relationship. That whatever else we disagree about, that's okay because we do agree that our only hope is in Christ and in Him alone. And, and we both agree in that. And so we're, we have that common bond. We have that brotherhood, that sisterhood. We have that, that unity within the gospel. It at the very least means that the gospel comes first. These women are Christians. Paul says their names are written in the book of life. Their names, like Clement, like true companion, like others, like other fellow workers, their names are written in the book of life. Paul, these women are believers. They have that common ground. So when when they are to agree in the Lord, it means that at the very least they start there. They start with, what do we have in common? Oh, that's right. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. I'm saved by the blood of Christ. You're saved by the blood of Christ. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Your hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That sounds like pretty good, solid foundation to me. Agree in the Lord. These women were not just Christians, but they actually were... Helpful. They were vital to Paul. They've labored side by side with him, verse 3. Paul says, I've ministered alongside these ladies. They've been a part of ministry in the church in Philippi. We don't know. Again, there again, we don't know. We don't know what they did. We don't know how they did it. We don't know what it looked like. We don't know any of that. So it doesn't matter. These were people who were actively involved and participating in the life of the church, the the ministry of the church in Philippi. They probably are the kinds of people that the congregation thought, these two people can't get along? These two people? We know they're believers. They've been so vital in the church. They've served with Paul. Paul urges them, entreats them, he pleads with them, to agree in the Lord. The truth of the gospel, the good of the church, should come before their own preferences, their own honor, their own glory, their own way, having their own rights. Fill in the blank. The gospel of Christ and the good of the church should come before their own honor, glory, fame. Paul pleads with him to agree. Now, if you're like me, you're wondering a question. So whose job is it? Which one of them Who of them, is it Euodia's job or is it Syntyche's job 
to seek out reconciliation? Whose job is it to seek out unity in the gospel? Because if you're like me, you're sitting there thinking, well, they know where to find me. They know where I'm sitting. They know where I live. They know my phone number. They know my email address. And I'm right here willing and ready to forgive if they'll just come back and apologize. They know where to find me. As soon as they come find me and, and seek me out, I'll gladly... Uh, and I'm, just, I'm right here waiting. They know how to find me. That's sort of the easy way for us to, to think, well, it's their job. It's someone else's responsibility to, to seek out this reconciliation. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. If that's been sort of your standard mantra, they know where to find me, uh, then Matthew 5 is your text. Matthew 5, verse 23. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. So in other words, you're there in worship. You're laying your gift at the altar and, and you remember that someone has a charge against you. You have offended someone. You are, in this case, you know, the, the offending party. And so there's someone out there that you've offended. They have something against you. Um, your job is actually walk away from that gift, go and seek reconciliation, and then come back and make that offering. In, in Matthew 5, Jesus teaches us that the offending party is responsible for seeking uh, restitution, reconciliation uh, within this relationship. And with that, most of us just kind of went, yep, I'm sitting right here, waiting on them to come find me. And as soon as they come find me, I'm right here. They know where to find me. But then we have a problem. And that problem is Matthew 18. So turn to Matthew 18. In Matthew 18, we read, if your brother sins against you, oh, now you're the offended party. Now you're not the offending party, but you're the offended one in this scenario. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens, you've won your brother. The, the picture is that if you're the offended party, your job is to seek out the one who has offended you and, and, and point out their fault. If you're the offending party, your job is to go to the one you've offended and seek reconciliation. There's a theme song to this, and I'm about to lose a couple of you right now. I know it. You're not going to hear anything else I say and I, which means I probably shouldn't use the illustration, but it's too good. Jesus says, I don't care how many fence posts there are between your house and theirs. You start walking their way, and they'll start walking yours. And you'll meet in the middle. There may not be a country pine there, but there'll be something there, some place for you to meet. 
You should bump into each other on the way to each other to heal the relationship, to seek reconciliation. Love in the context of the church is hard work. It's hard because we are all born selfish. And so we have to rely on God's grace and sanctification to hopefully see that dying bit by bit, piece by piece in our own lives. It's hard because not only are you selfish, but everyone around you is selfish. And that means that we're all wrestling with the same struggle. We're all dealing with the same issue. Conflict in the church happens. It's there. It's, gonna, it's, it's going to come up. Anytime you put this many sinners in one place together, you're going to get conflict. That's why we wish that that word was perfect instead of pardoning grace we sang earlier. If you're in a relational relationship conflict with a brother or sister, you both have the responsibility to seek out reconciliation. But notice what else Paul does here in verse 3. He then calls on other brothers to do the same. I entreat you, Euodia. I entreat you, Syntyche. So thankful. I wonder, well, never mind. I wonder if they ever reconciled. You know, we're never told. We, we don't know whatever came of this. That's probably why, one of the reasons why nobody names their children Euodia or Syntyche. They're known for being troublemakers. We don't want to drag that through our kids' lives. Paul not only entreats Euodia and entreats Syntyche to agree in the Lord, he then also calls on this true companion. Now, depending on what version you have, it may say um, Syzygus. It may actually be capitalized like it's a name. It could have been a person named Syzygus. The word means fellow worker, fellow companion. It could be that it's not a, a proper name, but it, that there's some unnamed person in the congregation. Again, there's something else we don't know about the passage. We don't know who this person actually is. But he calls on this person to come alongside these women, to urge them, to bring them to reconciliation. Now, now what we see is if you're in conflict with someone if you're the offending party, it's your job to go to the one you've offended and seek out reconciliation. If you're the one that's been offended, it's your job to go to the one who has offended you and seek out reconciliation. If you're observing this relationship, it's your job to talk about it. You, you should, that's not what this says. See, that's what we do. What we do is we go, well, you know who these two people can't get along. Yodi and Sintiki? You should have heard the argument they had after church. That's what we do. Nowhere does Paul say, here's what I want you to do. I want you to talk about each other. I want you to talk to everyone you can except the person you're supposed to talk to. 
quite the opposite is true. We read in Matthew 18, if someone uh, has, has, if you've offended someone, or if someone has offended you, you go and speak to them. Did you notice the word? Alone. Well, I mean, okay, I, I know I'm not supposed to talk about them. I'm not really talking about them. It's a prayer request. Paul says, the goal of the church fellowship is love, is unity within the body. Which means if if you're in conflict with someone, whatever the conflict is, I think it's probably a good thing we don't know what the conflict is. Because then we would be tempted to go, well, this isn't about that, so that doesn't apply here. The fact that we don't know, I think, makes it universal. We have a, a responsibility to seek reconciliation, to seek unity within the church fellowship. It means not gossiping about it. It means not even necessarily taking sides. It means not... Uh, giving an ear when one of them or when somebody comes to you and says, can you believe so-and-so? That's, we, our hands, that's where we should be three years old. right? At that point, when someone comes to you and says, can you believe, and they start talking about someone else in the church, you have God's command to be a three-year-old. Stick your fingers in your ears. And scream and yell and say, I'm not listening, I'm not listening, I'm not listening. You are commanded to do just that when gossip starts, when backbiting starts, when quarreling starts. Unfortunately, Grace Covenant Church is a church full of sinners. If perfection were demanded in order to join the church, you would be in your own church by yourself. I wouldn't be here. I'm pretty sure most of you wouldn't be here. Unfortunately, Grace Covenant Church is a church full of sinners. Conflict will come. That's not an excuse. That's not resignation to, well, if it's going to come, we might as well, let's go, jump in head first. Let's dive in and celebrate. that's That's not excuse and it's not resignation. It's a reminder that we need two things. It's a reminder that we need Scripture to teach us how to deal with that when it does. We need to understand God's Word on how to deal with conflict when it happens in the church family. If you feel the urge to talk about someone rather than to them, Scripture says, hold your tongue. That's, that's exactly what, what causes these kinds of conflicts. If you're, if you're tempted to talk about someone rather than to them, hold your tongue. That's, that's the cause of conflict in the church. Instead, go to them 
and address the issue personally, privately first. Make conscientious effort to set aside your own personal preference for the good of the church and for the growth of the gospel. As you think through the the ministry of any church, the struggles uh, that go on there, the struggles you have with other people, ask yourself, is this a gospel matter? If it's a gospel matter, hold on to it tightly and argue it loudly. If, if it's a matter of the truth of Scripture, if it's, if it's a core doctrine of, of, of God's Word, of the deity of Christ and His atoning death and sacrifice in our place, please hold tight to that and argue it loudly. Argue for it loudly. If it's not a matter of the Gospel, then hold your concern lightly even to the point of letting it go. Nothing will hinder the growth and ministry of Grace Covenant Church more than sheep that bite each other. You want to do damage to the ministry of a church, it's not somebody out there who's going to say bad things about us. It's, people in here saying bad things about each other. We know that, right? We know that the love we have for each other is is actually an apologetic for the gospel, that it's actually an evangelism tool. The church grows when unbelievers go, I don't know what those people are doing. I don't know what they teach. And I don't really know what's going on there. One thing I do know is they really seem to love each other. That's how the church grew so drastically. And one of the, the, the Greco-Roman thing, observations of the church was they teach some weird things, but they sure do care. They sure do love each other. Let's resolve as a congregation to seek the honor and glory of Christ rather than our own. I mentioned that we need two things. One is the teaching of God's Word on how to deal with conflict. The second is we need a Redeemer who rather than magnifying our faults and shortcomings covered them with His blood. You and I are tempted to grab a megaphone and point out all the negative things, all the shortcomings, all the faults, all the failures, all the mistakes, all the blemishes in the character of the people around us. You know what Jesus did? He crushed the megaphone and He covered it with His blood so that we might be forgiven, so that we might be washed clean. Is that how Christ... Does Christ treat you the way we want to treat each other? Does He magnify our sins? Does He magnify our faults? Does He he stand up on a mountaintop and, and publicize them to the world? Or does He instead quietly go to the cross, suffer and bleed 
and die so that our sins could be not magnified, but covered. Oh, that we might cover the sins of others. Let's pray. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the blood of Christ. And that you sent us a Redeemer. You sent us a Savior to come and not, not celebrate all the ways we have offended you. Not to come and seek revenge for all the ways that we've offended you. But to come and instead cover them up. To, to, to cover them with His own blood. Oh, that, that we might know that our sins have been covered. And oh, that we might seek to do the same for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Father, would You grow this congregation through that kind of love? Hard work though love is, would You grow this congregation through a love that seeks the honor and glory of Christ, the good of the church, and is even willing to lay aside our own personal pride and preferences for the honor of Christ and the good of the church and the advancement of the gospel. For it's in Christ's name that we ask. Amen.